All right, so um, today we're going to be talking about uh, atrial fibrillation. This is a, uh, a very important topic. Um, one of the most important topics, actually, in, when it comes to medicine. This is one of, one of the few topics that we did not cover in the uh, cardiology board review um, that we did earlier. Um, so I'm going to cover it now. Uh, once again, my name is Mohamed Allo, um, cardiologist, uh, Midwestern University. You can follow me on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, um, anywhere you'd like on the internet. Um, but basically, atrial fibrillation, just briefly, um, you, know, you all know about it. It's the most common uh, arrhythmia in the United States, approximately uh, 2.7 or uh, 3 million people have it. Um, and it's basically an irregular uh, heartbeat. Um, all, and, and if you don't know what that means, most of the time your heart beats boom, 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 boom. And in this case, it would be all over the place, like boom, 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 boom. And there'd be um, short distances between beats, long distances between beats, three, four in a row, then a stop. Um, but basically, that's how it. Um, that's how you recognize it. Um, so what are the symptoms? A lot of people wonder, um, you know, how do I know if I have this? Well, uh, most of the time there are no symptoms. It's, it's asymptomatic. Um, there's no symptoms and, and most people don't even know they have it. Um, but sometimes they're very subtle symptoms. Some people have easy fatigability where um, you used to be able to, to mow the lawn or walk up a flight of stairs and, and now you can't. You, you just get more tired um, than, than the average person. Um, the other um, symptom that people get. Sometimes you get really short of breath. Um, you get what's called dyspnea. Now this may be all the time you're feeling short of breath or when you exert yourself uh, you feel short of breath. Um, the other thing is activity intolerance. Sort of like easy fatigability. When you when you get up to do something you just can't take it uh, like you used to. Um, some people um, notice palpitations. Palpitations simply means you notice your heart beating and some people notice it. Um, a lot of it, and it really doesn't matter what rate it is. Um, most of the time, you feel palpitations when your heart is racing, uh, but it can be almost any any rate. People uh, notice their heart uh, rate, um, but when it gets really really high rates, is when you, is when usually people notice it. And and if your heart is beating uh, over 140, 150 all the time, then usually you'll notice it. Now, of course, there's the rare occasion of people who don't. So this is what it looks like. Um, if you notice, you look at it carefully, you don't see any P waves, um, and then you see beats all over the place. If you look at the first two beats, that's a, they're they have they're um, closer together than the than the than the distance between the second one and the third one. Then there's a few more that are even closer together, and so on and so forth. You don't have a regular pattern. It's called irregularly irregular. Um, so atrial fibrillation breaks down, you know, into two basic. Um, uh, treatment categories. The, f the most important thing we need is an ultrasound of the heart or an echocardiogram. Uh, we need to know does the patient have a normal ejection fraction or a low ejection fraction. And th this makes it really, really simple to treat atrial fibrillation. For everybody with a normal ejection fraction, you have to put them on medications to control their heart rate. Um, usually metoprolol by itself does the trick, and if it doesn't, you can add cardizem uh, to it. Um, if they have a low ejection fraction, um, you can put them on metoprolol, which they, they should be on a beta blocker anyways, uh, as well as digoxin to help improve their contractility and improve that ejection fraction. There's absolutely no role for digoxin in atrial fibrillation 
um, for somebody who has a normal ejection fraction. Now, a lot of doctors um, add it on to metoprolol or whatnot. Um, that's really old school thinking, um, and, and it really shouldn't be done. But a lot of times people are comfortable with what they know, and so they stick to it. So this is your basic breakdown. Anytime you see a patient with AFib, um, you got to know, do they have a regular, do they have a normal ejection fraction or a low ejection fraction, and, and you could choose the drugs based on that. Um, the next most important step is, um, do you want to rate control them or rhythm control them? Rate control is, is simple. Um, you put them on rate control medications, and you just try to slow their heart down. Rhythm control, you try to get them back in rhythm, whether it's through medications or by uh, electric shock or cardioversion, uh, but you want to try to put them back in rhythm. Um, so the rate control drugs are, are pretty simple. Um, they were on that previous slide. Um, you can use beta blockers, calcium channel blockers that are non-dihydropyridones, um, like diltiazem or verapamil. We try to avoid verapamil. Um, but diltiazem or cartazem is a very uh, good medication, as well as metoprolol, um, neither of which should drop your uh, blood pressure. Um, at very high doses, diltiazem can. They both function mainly as AV nodal blocking agents and not um, vasodilators. Um, they should work really, really well. And you can also add digoxin if they have a low uh, ejection fraction. That's considered the rate control uh, uh, arm. The other arm is the rhythm control. There's six medications that we could put people on for rhythm control. Um, and these are the PO medications. Sure, there are a lot of other things that you can give IV, but for PO medications and long-term uh, outpatient care, um, you have amiodarone, sodalol, flecainide, dofetilide, or ticosin, um, propofenone, and dronetadrone. Um, these are your options, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit about that in a second. So rate control is easy. You put them on those drugs, get their heart rate down around 70, 80, when they exert themselves maybe up to 100 or 110, and you just move on. Um, with rhythm control, it's a little tricky. You have these six medications, but how do you know which one to pick? Um, how do you know if you're going to put them on amiodarone versus sodalol versus flecainide? Well, here there's a little algorithm you can use. Um, before we get to that, the Affirm trial um, was a study back in 2002. They had 4,000 patients, or just over 4,000 patients. They had two arms, one rate control arm and one rhythm control arm. Um, the rhythm control group that they put back in sinus rhythm were allowed to stop the Coumadin after four weeks if they wanted to. Uh, the rate control group actually ended up having better mortality overall, especially if the patients were over 65 and did not have CHF. Um, and for both groups, the stroke rate was the same, about 1% per year. So rate control in this case uh, showed improved mortality, but ultimately um, the AFFIRM trial showed no difference. A lot of times in the past we thought that when somebody has atrial fibrillation, you have to do everything you can to get them back in rhythm, and that's just not the case. They both do well. Rate control is just as good as rhythm control. Um, so back to our um, six drugs here. How do you know which ones to pick or what to, what to put them on? Um, so here's a, a simple uh, updated guideline from 2011. Um, so the most important thing, if you look here on the left, is to find out do they have heart disease or not? And by heart disease, we mean do they have coronary artery disease, um, do they have hypertension with LVH, or do they have heart failure? Those are the three things you want to worry about. If they have no heart disease or minimal heart disease, 
you have almost any option you want. Any of those six drugs will work. Um, we try to avoid amiodarone in younger patients. If they're under 70, they're still in their 40s, 50s, 60s, we try to avoid amiodarone. Um, and if they're younger, we would we try to do an ablation. You know, well, actually, almost in any patient, we actually try to do an ablation. Why keep somebody in atrial fibrillation when we have ways to get rid of it? Um, now, if they're asymptomatic and it's not bothering them, then there's no reason to ablate it. But we try to avoid amiodarone um, and until the patients are older because the longer you're on amiodarone, the more the toxicities build up. So um, the, those are your options. If you have no heart disease, um, you can start with Multac or Dronetadrone, um, Flecainide, Propofenone, Sotalol, um, and then eventually Amiodarone or Ticacin. Um, but that's kind of the algorithm you should use. Ticacin is actually a very nice drug, and, you, and you can, it's expensive, though. That's why some of the other ones are uh, rated higher than it. Um, the next question is if they have hypertension. If they have a lot of LVH, and we're not talking uh, 1.3, um, 1.1, 1.2 centimeters. We're talking over 1.3. If they have significant uh, LVH, then you're stuck. You have to treat them like a heart failure patient, and you can only basically... Uh, put them on amiodarone. If they don't have LVH and they're just regularly hypertensive, just pick whatever you want. Um, if they have coronary artery disease, uh, propofenone and flecainide are contraindicated. Um, there, were, there was the CAS trial where they, where they uh, um, used similar medications to flecainide uh, and propofenone, uh, put people on it, mortality increased. So if they have coronary artery disease, you're very limited. You can use Sotalol, which is basically a beta blocker, but it has some class 3 antiarrhythmic properties. You can use Ticacin, Dronetadrone, and Amiodarone, or you can ablate them. Um, if they have heart failure, you're very limited. You can use Amiodarone or Ticacin, or Amiodarone and Dofetilide. Um, those are your only two uh, options in that case. So um, this is kind of a guideline, you know, print it out, put it in your pocket. You should know what to do when you're on a cardiology rotation, which drugs are your options, and which ones are not. Um, but it's a very good breakdown. So now it comes down to, all right, so what if I have a patient with very bad kidney disease? Um, which drugs are cleared by the kidney? Which drugs are cleared by the liver? So the the ones that are cleared by the kidney are basically Ticacin and Sotalol. If you have a patient with uh, poor kidney function, avoid Ticacin and avoid Sotalol. Um, Flecainide is 30% cleared by the kidney, 70% liver. Uh, on the liver side is almost all the other drugs, amiodarone, flecainide, propofenone, and dronetadrone. Um, if, if they have uh, liver cirrhosis or, or any kind of liver disease um, that prevents processing or, or clearing of uh, medications, then you want to avoid those drugs. Um, so that's kind of your breakdown. You have to choose based on your patient's uh, level of heart disease, what type of heart disease they have or don't have, and whether or not they have liver or kidney disease. Now, if they're young and they don't have heart disease, they don't have hypertension, heart failure, coronary disease, nothing, you can pick whatever you want, really. Um, so that's kind of how it breaks down. Um, the other question that comes up very uh, frequently is anticoagulation. So a normal person um, after age uh, 75 has about a 1% uh, chance per year to have a stroke. Uh, people with atrial fibrillation are at 5% chance if they're not anticoagulated. So while 5% per year is not very high, it's still five times higher than the normal person. Um, so the, the key is to pick uh, an anticoagulant uh, drug to help uh, prevent strokes. 
Um, the reason they get clots is because the top two chambers aren't contracting. Atrial fibrillation is where the top two chambers just fibrillate. So blood clots can form on the left side and eventually be dislodged and, and give you a stroke. Um, it used to be, up until the last few years, that we only had Coumadin as a choice, but now um, we, you know, now we have three other options. Um, so Coumadin is very simple. It's a vitamin K antagonist. It, it um, antagonizes vitamin K. It takes a while to deplete your vitamin K, and then your vitamin K-dependent cofactors, 10972 CNS, are all depleted, and then your uh, INR uh, goes up. Um, so that's how Coumadin works. It takes about five days to know how much that dose is going to affect you. So if you start somebody on five milligrams a day for five days, um, don't check an INR till like the fourth or fifth day. Um, and it really takes about two weeks total to get the um, to know what the person's uh, uh, INR is going to be on that dose of Coumadin. So if they're on five milligrams for at least two weeks, and then you check an INR, that's what their INR is going to be on that dose of Coumadin. Um, so that's very very um, important uh, uh, to keep in mind. Um, Coumadin is very, very cheap, and for that reason, uh, lots of people are still on it. You do want to avoid your dark green leafy vegetables, and I don't like to tell patients to avoid them. I like I like my patients to eat dark green leafy vegetables. I just tell them try to eat a similar amount uh, every day or every week or however often you eat it. If you like your spinach or collard greens or kale, just eat the same amount every day. We'll adjust your Coumadin. Uh, accordingly. Um, the other drug um, that came out uh, after Coumadin, the, there's three, uh, Dabigatran came out first, then uh, Rivaroxaban and now Pixaban. But Dabigatran, I'm just going from bottom to top, Dabigatran is a direct thrombin inhibitor. It's called Pradaxa. It's 150 milligrams uh, twice a day is the dose. Um, the next one that came out was Rivaroxaban. Um, which is Xarelto, 20 milligrams once a day. It's a factor 10A inhibitor. Um, the next one that came after that is called Eliquis or Apixaban. It's a 5 milligram uh, twice a day uh, factor 10A uh, inhibitor. Very novel um, studies. You should know um, some of the side effects you can get with these and um, also how to reverse them uh, if at all possible. Anybody know how to reverse Dabigatran? Okay, a couple of people in the back saying you can't. One person says dialysis. Okay, good. Um, how do you reverse rivaroxaban or pixaban? Sure, somebody says you can wait. Okay, good. Well, we'll see in a second here. Um, so Coumadin is very easy. If you need to reverse it immediately, um, you can transfuse FFPs. Now, FFP is fresh frozen plasma. When the FFP is being transfused, your INR is 1. So if somebody needs a colonoscopy or a procedure of some sort and their INR is 3.5 and they don't want to do it or 2.8, start infusing FFPs, go do the procedure. Throughout the procedure, they'll be 1.0. When they come back, um, their, their INR, you know, shortly after the uh, procedure or shortly after the FFP is done transfusing, will come down, but, but it'll go right back up. Um, close to where it was. So if they're 3.5, infuse some FFPs, four units, they get their colonoscopy done. A few hours later, the next day you check it, it's down to like 2.8. Now, so it's, it, it brings it down, but but not a, not a whole lot. Um, the the uh, If you have time and you're just trying to reverse it slowly over time, 
um, vitamin K um, is is how you reverse a vitamin K antagonist. You give somebody vitamin K. Um, now, a lot of times people don't realize where vitamin K comes from. It comes from the bacteria in your guts. So if somebody's put on antibiotics for a pneumonia or bronchitis or, you know, whatever it might be, UTI, and you deplete the bacteria in your guts, your vitamin K levels are going to go down and your INR is going to go up. So keep that in mind um, when you're uh, treating patients. Um, the other question comes up a lot about Coumadin. Is the lab called and said this patient's Coumadin 7.5? Or, you know, we're in the hospital, there's an ICU patient, and their Coumadin is over greater than 12. If the patient is not actually bleeding and their hemoglobins are stable, you do not have to rush to try to um, reverse uh, elevated INRs. You can just wait it out. It doesn't take very long, um, and it'll, it will come down. Um, so there's no reason to rush to reverse these if there's no obvious signs of bleeding and the patient um, is stable. Um, the next one is uh, dabigatran or Pradaxa. Um, it is a shorter half-life. It's 150 milligrams twice a day. So you could wait it out if you have time, but if you don't, the only way to get rid of dabigatran um, is dialysis, uh, which is important to know. So if somebody's on Pradaxa, um, dialysis will help. Another side effect of the Pradaxa um, is dyspepsia. A lot of patients, about 14 to 20%, um, complain of stomach pain. That They say, my stomach just doesn't feel right. I wonder if I'm getting an ulcer. Um, it's almost the feeling you get when, when you start taking PO steroids. Um, but you get an unusual dyspepsia. So in that case, you can switch them to one of the other ones. Um, apixaban and rivaroxaban, um, no real good way to uh, reverse these. There's something called prothrombin complex concentrates, or PCC for short. It is um, not readily available, and, and the outcomes aren't perfect with it, but it does uh, help. You can wait them out uh, for a Pixaban. It's 5 milligrams twice a day. You can kind of wait it out. Um, Zarelto or Rivaroxaban is a much longer half-life. Um, you'll probably be waiting two, three days uh, before that one gets uh, low enough in your system. Um, so they, they recommend that at least one hospital in each city have PCC. Um, in case there's a big emergency, um, but even till now, that that's not readily available. Um, so, last but not least, um, actually, in conclusion, that's pretty much how you treat uh, atrial fibrillation um, and a lot of the basic uh, drugs and algorithms to use to decide what drugs to put them on and not put them on. If you have any questions. Uh, I'll be happy to take them right now. Yeah, go ahead. Um, he brings up a good question. If somebody comes into the emergency room um, with a bleed and you're not sure when they took their last dose, it really it really depends on the medication. For example, Pradaxa and Eliquis, or uh, Pradaxa and um, Apixaban, uh, because they're twice a day medications, you know, monitor the patient, you know, do CT scans of their head or whatever you think is bleeding. Um, if it's an emergency, in the case of Pradaxa or Dabigatran, you can do dialysis. Um, with the others, call around and see if you can get some PCC. Um, but, that, but that's all we really uh, have for now. Okay. So his question is about um, Plavix, aspirin, and Coumadin. A lot of times patients have stents and they need aspirin, Coumadin, and Plavix. Um, 
let me ask you, what out of those three drugs, which one is most likely to cause a GI bleed? Okay, good. Half the cla uh, half of uh, half of you are saying um, aspirin and Plavix. Um, some of the others are saying Coumadin. So um, there's an important um, difference between platelet bleeding and factor bleeding, deep bleeding or superficial bleeding. Platelet bleeding is superficial bleeding. Um, it, it, it's the um, faster um, bleeding where your body can quickly stop the bleeding. What affects that is uh, aspirin and Plavix. That's what affects your platelets and the interaction between your platelets and the endothelial lining. So aspirin and Plavix um, affect your platelets. Coumadin is a, it affects your cofactors and it affects factor bleeding. Those are deep bleeds, um, usually like hemarthrosis or hematomas. Um, it's not really um, superficial bleeds. All the other bleeds other than hemarthrosis and hematomas are generally superficial bleeds. GI bleeds, epistaxis, um, skin lacerations, bleeding in your head, any intracranial hemorrhage, um, vaginal bleeding from menstrual cycles, almost any other bleeding um, is considered a uh, superficial bleed. So those are from your uh, aspirin and Plavix or any of the newer antiplatelet agents like um, Ticagalor or Berlinta. Um, so those, uh, so yeah, so if somebody comes in um, with an intracranial hemorrhage and they're on aspirin and Plavix, those are both irreversible. Um, so then in that case, you want to transfuse them platelets um, or if they need to go to surgery, they need to go to surgery. But you know, you'll make the judgment call there. If they're on Coumadin and they come in with a GI bleed, you know, it's probably not the Coumadin. Um, it's, it's always the aspirin. Uh, or the Plavix, or both aspirin and Plavix, but it's, it's not really the Coumadin that's the problem. Uh, but most of the time, we'll stop all of them. In the case of a life-threatening bleed, you got to weigh the risk versus benefits, um, and in most cases, we'll probably have to, to stop those or, or just choose two, um, depending on the patient and their situation. Okay, good. Any other questions? All right. Well, here's how you can get a hold of me. And I look forward to talking to you again.